Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Deviant Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games, a.k.a. Skartol in the world of Wikipedia and elsewhere. And the only deviant thing about me is my sociocultural heterogeneity. First of all, I'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, those of you who responded to the last show, it was a, a very nice of you to do so. And uh, I want to say a few things about the podcast before we get started with this week's program. First of all, I want you to know that I'm going to try to talk more slowly this week. I know that in the past I have gotten all flustered and worked up about how I sound. And uh, am I, I want to make sure I don't waste people's time. So as a result, I want to hurry up and, and move through everything and make sure the discussion keeps moving constantly. Uh, this is what I'm like in the classroom as well. And I know that that doesn't always make for an interesting listening experience, so I'm trying to slow it down a little bit and give you something groovy for your ears. I also apologize for a relative lack of editing, and I'm not including many sound clips. Actually, this week I'm going to include a couple, but they're going to be few and far between people uh, because I'm generally really busy, and doing a lot of editing and adding sound clips and things is fun, but it takes time, so I have to keep that to a bare minimum, and I apologize for that. And I'm going to end this section with a quick word about the ego. Uh, I tend to be a very egotistical person, and it uh, sort of freaks me out a little bit when I confront my ego because I realize, uh, you know what, maybe everything I think and say isn't really all that important. But then again, there's the drama of the little hater that Jay Smooth talked about. And uh, I don't want to deny the fact that um, sometimes I have important things to say, but suffice it to say that uh, when I do this podcast, sometimes I feel like, and when I post on my blog and other places, I kind of feel like, um, I, I, I feel like Fry when he's talking to the robot Lucy Liu on Futurama. Then when I feel so stuffed I can't eat anymore, I just use the restroom, and then I can eat more. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. Uh, speaking of the blog, I should mention that uh, this uh, podcast comes through my personal blog, which is at fbesp.org/synapse. Uh, again, that's floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org/synapse. Uh, you go to the main fbesp.org site, and it's uh, sort of um, links to all my other sites. And anyway, uh, yeah. So if you check out uh, the website, my blog, uh, there's a lot of information with links and stuff about all the stuff I'm going to be talking about today, uh, as well as other things. I also have a Tumblr called The CineStream, which has a whole lot of sort of memory and just silly things. And the, the, there was a snrub website that I linked to recently and a very funny video that the Duchess uh, passed along to me. So uh, check all that stuff out at fbesp.org slash synapse. Uh, you can get to all the other stuff from there. All right, I want to start with Syria. Current events, let's talk about Syria. Oh, boy, people aren't sick of hearing me talk about Syria yet. Well, you know what? I'm sick of hearing about Syria because some really nasty stuff is going down. I found a really good article from the Associated Press where they had a sort of Q&A on the background of the uprising in Syria. And most people probably know that there's been this sort of Arab Spring going on uh, across the Middle East recently. And we're hoping that it will also become a Persian Spring uh, that sort of uh, wipes through Iran and destabilizes that authoritarian regime. Um <clears throat> I, I, I should make it clear that, in my opinion, the nature, in, in a purely tactical sense, uh, a nonviolent approach to, for the Syrian uprising seems to me to be uh, preferred. And, of course, it's very easy for me to say that. I'm living in my comfortable home in the U.S., and I'm not watching uh, my neighbors being you know, executed and all the stuff we'll get to in Syria. But uh, what I will say is this. Once uh, rebellion starts up with weaponry, then the Syrian government has more of a legitimate claim to make that they 
need to put down an insurrection in order to maintain the stability of their nation. And I think that a nonviolent uprising like we saw in Egypt has a much more uh, tactical opportunity to make itself uh, felt on the world stage because they are able to say, look, we are protesting nonviolently for a change in a more democratic direction, which uh, obviously the Mubarak regime tried to repress anyway with force, and they obviously were not successful with that. And I think if the Syrian uh, opposition were to use weapons and try to rise up in a somewhat violent way, then legitimate as that resistance might be, uh, the Syrian government will be, um, they will will feel as though they are more justified, and a lot of their neighbors will probably also say, yes, they are justified in cracking down with military force. Whereas if the Syrian regime continues to crack down, as we have seen them do, on mostly civilians, uh, with this nasty, hideous uh, violation of human rights and and, 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 uh, horrible, violent repression... um, then we we have a a, a much more um, imbalanced uh, situation. Okay, so from the AP Q&A, the question is, how did the conflict start? And they put it like this. After uprisings toppled regimes in Egypt and Tunisia, the first protests began in Syria's southern town of Dara in mid-March after the arrest of schoolchildren who had scrawled anti-government graffiti. Protests began to spread to other parts of the country as Assad's regime cracked down, opening fire on demonstrators. Since then, the violence had escalated as the opposition turned more to use of arms and the regime stepped up its retaliation with shelling of neighborhoods, army defectors, and regime forces forces clash frequently. Homs in central Syria has been one of the main centers of the uprising, particularly in a string of mainly Sunni neighborhoods like Baba Amar. Now, it's important to point out that there is some ethnic tension going on here between um, different people of different backgrounds in Syria. There's also religious tension between Shiites and Sunnis. Um, there there are historical tensions, and there's, the, of course, the lingering effect of colonialism still prevalent in Syria, as well as many other parts of the Middle East. Um, but it's worth pointing out, of course, that these children who were arrested because they scrawled anti-government graffiti, if the regime had just sort of given them a slap on the wrist, the demonstrations probably would not have spread, but they didn't. And that that led to other protests, which the government also cracked down on very violently, and we see this sort of snowballing effect when a government tries to crack down on something that, had they ignored it, probably wouldn't have had much of an effect. Uh, the BBC News also had a uh, article about um, a guy named Paul Conroy, uh, who was a... Um, he was he was a journalist who had been in uh, war zones for ten years, and he said uh, he's been in um, all sorts of places around the world. And he says that the what's going on in homes right now in Syria will eventually be uh, compared uh, on the scale of Rwanda or Srebrenica. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and so he's saying that what we're seeing here is a, uh, a slaughter that's going to be uh, really on on a scale of historical proportions if uh, things don't change. Um, meanwhile, the Sydney Morning Herald also said that um, there have been atrocities going on in um, in Syria and especially in homes. Uh, the Sydney Morning Herald said. Anti-Assad activists accuse Syrian troops of burning houses, arresting all males over the age of 12, and of extrajudicial killings, including the alleged beheadings of 17 men. Um, There's some nasty pictures on the article as well. And it's very hard, of course, to verify what's going on in Syria, but 
um, suffice it to say that the fact that they've barred the Red Cross from coming into uh, homes and other places, uh, it's, it's really not a good sign, in my opinion. When you're denying the Red Cross access to your country, that's a pretty important sign that you're doing something wrong. And the Red Cross is not getting access to homes, and that's an important fundamental element of this whole question. Uh, because if the Red Cross can't get in, then we have a very hard time determining what's going on at all. And so that makes me think that the Syrian government is doing something really horrible and nasty. <clears throat> Meanwhile, as I said last week, uh, the question about what we in the West should think and do about all of this is a tricky question because we are tempted to say, oh, let's go in. Uh, John McCain uh, recently said, let's arm the rebels in Syria. And other people are saying, you know, look, we did the right thing in Libya. We helped overthrow Gaddafi and we should do the same thing in Syria. Well, it's not that easy. And there's a really interesting guy named Marwan Bashara who writes for Al Jazeera, and he has a program called Empire, which is very interesting. And he talked about, he has a piece up recently um, that uh, came out on 21st of February, and he said that NATO, the headline is NATO caught in the headlights. And he says that it's tempting to think that NATO did everything beautifully and perfect in Libya, and that it all ended up very cleanly and quickly. Uh, but the reality is that it's a little more complicated than that. He puts it this way. The militarization of the Arab Spring in Libya did not bode well for it or other Arab nations such as Syria and Yemen. Western exploitation of the Libyan escalation had also tarnished the Arab Revolution with more and more of the same foreign intervention which had long been detested by the Arabs for being selective and motivated by cynicism. So yes to the intervention in Libya as it was on the side of the people and against a dictator who had outlived his usefulness to the West, but no to intervention to support people power in Bahrain because it was contrary to Saudi interests. The intervention also encouraged a reinvigorated NATO to speak of the Libyan operation as a prototype of operations to come. And again, I have a fear that the, the success with which NATO uh, achieved its goals in Libya might lead it to think, oh, we can, we can and should intervene in other places around the world uh, despite the fact that there may not be the same uh, <clears throat> emergency or urgency. And, and the question, of course, is what was the urgency in uh, Libya? And, and, and to what degree was that urgency exploited and, and uh, blown out of proportion by NATO and the United States and other Western powers because it wanted to intervene for its own interests? Because the United States has a long history, if you, you know, look at the 1991 Gulf War, for instance, of saying, oh, there's this horrible human rights catastrophe. And don't get me wrong, Iraq was doing nasty things in Kuwait, but that those weren't good enough, according to the people who wanted to see uh, the United States go to war with Iraq in 1991. So they, they cooked up this story about Iraqi troops ripping babies out of incubators and throwing them on the floor and the rest of it. And, and you should look into the story because it's, uh, there's this whole thing about it was a daughter of the Kuwaiti royal family who came and testified and, and the PR firm that cooked up the story. And it was all bogus. So I'm always very suspicious about the the fact that, you know, oh, the NATO is going to go in for pure reasons or the United States is always going to stand up for democracy and human rights. I mean, having looked deeply into the story of East Timor, I know that many times the United States turns a blind eye to human rights abuses and in many cases uh, actively opposes the actions that people are taking to try to end human rights abuses. So I am very suspicious when the U.S. government stands up and says, oh, there are human rights abuses taking place. We must do something because sometimes that's a smokescreen for we want to do something in this region to promote U.S. interests and U.S. hegemonic power. And as a result, uh, we enter into a war, we engage in a bombing campaign, 
Canadian or whatever it is, and uh, lots of people uh, sometimes die. On the other hand, as I said last week, uh, sometimes I think the U.S. Uh, military uh, machine can be used, and often is used, sometimes is used. I don't know which adjective to use there. Adverb. It's an adverb. Yeah, it would be an adverb. Uh, I don't know which adverb to use there in terms of how often, uh, but at least sometimes, uh, the U.S. military is used uh, to stop abuses of human rights, as we saw in uh, Kosovo and other places. Okay, uh, shifting gears slightly, uh, there's a quick thing about Israel and Iran. <sighs> Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, is coming to Washington, D.C. this week in order to meet with President Obama. And there's been a lot of news stories about, oh, how much will the United States stand behind Israel as it confronts Iran over its nuclear weapon cash and its nuclear weapon ambition? And is Iran developing a nuclear weapon? And, and we can't let Iran have a nuclear weapon. And don't get me wrong. I don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon. Let me state that right up front very clearly. I don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon. However, I didn't want Iraq to have a nuclear weapon either. And there was a whole lot of hysterical hand-wringing and, and dire predictions about whether the smoking gun will be a mushroom cloud in the case of Iraq having a nuclear weapon. And when we went in, of course, we found that they weren't even close. And there was a whole lot of evidence that the, the very few pieces of information that might suggest that Iraq was developing a nuclear weapon or, you know, biological and chemical weapons, that that information was all cooked and, 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 and exaggerated once again. And I'm very nervous that the same thing might be happening with Iran. So the, the conversation always starts with Iran's almost got a nuclear weapon. We have to take action to stop them. And I just want us to take a step back and say, wait a minute, is that true? What's the evidence? And, you know, what are the other elements we need to talk about? And one of the elements that we need to talk about that I don't hear anybody talking about is this. Israel has nuclear weapons. They will not admit it, but they won't deny it either. And most people uh, agree that it's a fair, it's a pretty safe bet that Israel has nuclear weapons. And there was a guy named Mordecai Vanunu who uh, was working on the Israel or had access to the Israeli nuclear program or something like that. And then he leaked the information to the world so that everyone understood, oh, wait, look, Israel has nuclear weapons. <clears throat> Now, some people say, oh, well, it's okay that Israel has nuclear weapons, and it's not okay that Iran has nuclear weapons because Israel is a democracy. Well, I suppose that's true, but on the other hand, Palestinians in Israel and Arabs as a whole in Israel are not given access to the democratic institutions in the way that they really ought to if we were to describe Israel as a full and totally uh, open democracy. Uh, meanwhile, Iran says it is a democracy. After all, they have elections, don't they? Um, so the question about whether a country is a democracy or not is one that is it relies on a careful examination of what a democracy really is. Meanwhile, let us not forget, uh, I think Kurt Vonnegut uh, pointed this out right after 9-11 or in the lead up to the Iraq war. I don't remember exactly when. I wish I could find the source, but I tried and I just can't find it. But he pointed out this. The only nation in the history of the world ever to use nuclear weapons was a democracy. So uh, I just think that it's a little hypocritical for the United States to say, oh, we don't want anyone else to have a nuclear weapon because we have them and we're the only ones who have ever used them. 
And there's a case to be made. I know that, oh, it saved lives in the long run and, you know, this, that, and ended Japan's imperial overreach and the rest of it. But I suppose my question is, what about the U.S. imperial overreach? And uh, I just feel like that's something to concern us. Meanwhile, um, there was a really interesting extended piece in Al Jazeera about, um, from a guy named Tom Engelhart about drone warfare. And for those of you who don't know... <clears throat> Drones are being used. The United States military uses drones on a regular basis all over the world. Uh, one crash landed in Iran recently, and they said, we're going to keep it, and we're going to you know, dissect it and look at it and learn from it. And the United States says, no, we just, we, that, should, that belongs to us. We need it back. And basically Iran said, oh, yeah, well, then why did it crash into Iran? And some people said, oh, it was just spying on Afghanistan, and then it, you know, it was in the air in Afghanistan where you know, we have a military presence, and it accidentally veered into Iran. Uh, other more cynical people said, no, we were probably spying on Iran. Either way, um, these drones are often used for surveillance, but they're also often used to drop bombs. And there are a whole lot of questions that come about as a result of this, because uh, we don't really know much about this drone attack program uh, going on. Uh, a lot of it's happening in Pakistan, and there's a lot of evidence that suggests that a lot of innocent civilians are being killed by these drones. And there are a lot of questions, because th the whole concept of using these flying robots to drop bombs on Pakistan uh, changes changes the nature of the warfare. And uh, <clears throat> this guy in Al Jazeera, uh, Tom Engelhart, uh, who is, his bio says, he is the co-founder of the American Empire Project and the author of The American Way of War, How Bush's Wars Became Obama's, uh, and a number of others. <clears throat> uh, he, writes, he writes it this way. Think of us as moving from the citizen's army to a roboticized and finally robot military to a military that is a foreign legion in the most basic sense. In other words, we are moving towards an ever greater outsourcing of war to things that cannot protest, cannot vote with their feet or wings, and for whom there is no home front or even a home at all. In a sense, we are, as we have been since 1973, heading for a form of war without anyone, citizen or otherwise, in the picture, except those on the ground, enemy and civilian alike, who, do, who will die as usual. And those who know me know that I have great respect for the men and women who volunteer to serve in our military, and I think it's an incredibly courageous thing to do, and, and, and God bless the men and women who uh, serve overseas uh, to uh, you know, serve our country. However, um, I object to the use of flying robots to drop bombs on people. And I think that if we're going to fight terrorism, uh, to, for every person that we kill who is a terrorist in these attacks, the statistics seem to say that we're also killing two or three civilians uh, whose mothers, fathers, brothers, children are then turning around and saying, oh, this is how the United States is responding to us. It is killing people with these flying robots. That's how they're going to play the game. Well, how can I respond? How can I get revenge for my father or my brother or my son? or whatever it is, and there is a radicalization process that takes place uh, in that way, and in much the same way as uh, people who are unjustly detained at Bagram Air Base or Guantanamo Bay, and there have been people who have been unjustly detained in those places. Uh, there's a great documentary film called Taxi to the Dark Side, which takes a look at this whole process of indefinite detention and without habeas corpus. People are not being charged with things, and they're just being held for years and years, and then eventually maybe we'll say, oh, there's really no evidence that they're involved in any terrorist activity, let them go. Sorry. Take it easy. Uh, well, you know, that some people have said if they weren't terrorists going in, they sure will be terrorists coming out because um, the treatment at Guantanamo, despite the fact that, you know, some 
press junkets have shown them, oh, look at this elaborate menu that these men have, but they are kept in solitary confinement, extreme sensory deprivation, and uh, enhanced interrogation techniques, as they call them, uh, which include waterboarding and other hideous things. So anyway, yeah, let's move on to economics, something much more upbeat. Um, <laughs> BP, British Petroleum, or I guess they're beyond petroleum now, whatever you want to call them, um, they have set aside a, uh, they've reached a deal with the victims of the Gulf spill. Uh, the, those of you who don't know, of course, there was a big uh, oil spill in uh, late 2011, and uh, <clears throat> so there was, uh, okay, so BP, uh, they had this, blowout. Deepwater Horizon was this oil rig that was drilling, this deep water drilling uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, and something went horribly wrong, and miles under the ocean, uh, this oil plug came out. I don't even know the details. Uh, but anyway, hundreds and hundreds, millions of gallons of oil just spewing out of the ocean, and there was, of course, video footage and just going everywhere. Um, the, one of the important things to point out is that you know, some people have said, oh, we shouldn't do this deep water drilling, and I agree with that. Uh, but, of course, the point that the oil companies responded with was, oh, well, it's much safer to do drilling closer to the shore. But the problem is people didn't want that happening because then it, when you go to the beach, you see these oil rigs in the distance. So because of this sort of aesthetic response, this sort of not-in-my-backyard approach, a.k.a. NIMBY, a lot of people pressured their legislatures to say, hey, we have to drive those oil rigs out to where we can't see them. And as a result, the oil companies have said that makes it much more difficult. And some people have said, oh, well, that means we should open up the Alaskan National you know, Arctic Refuge in order to drill there. And some people have said that the tar sands in Canada would be a good option so that we don't have to do this kind of dangerous deep-sea drilling. But of course, for me, the response is, well, you know what, we need to break our addiction to fossil fuels. We have to get off of the oil uh, crack pipe and find other ways to power our society in order to avoid the need to constantly rip up the tar sands of the Alaskan National Refuge or the deep oil reserves or whatever it is so that we don't have to constantly try to find new and more desperate ways to fill our oil reserves. And, you know, those of you who know me know that I love playing video games. There was an interesting game called Frontline's Fuel of War, which sort of was set in a post-peak oil uh, scenario where all the nations of the world were fighting desperately for these few remaining oil reserves, and it gets nasty, obviously. Anyway, so the, the news is that BP has reached a $7.8 billion deal with Gulf spill victims, and there's an article in Business Week which said, uh, the U.S. Clean Water Act lets the United States seek fines of as much as $1,100 for each barrel of oil spilled as a result of simple negligence, often described as a failure to exercise ordinary care. And those of you who examine what happened at the Deepwater Horizon, uh, there were a lot of mistakes made, and the people who were supposed to be supervising the safety regulations there were people who had uh, been, as they call it, regulatory capture. BP basically had people from their company who would go into the regulation uh, departments in the U.S. government, and then once they left there, they knew they could get a job with BP again, or you know, other oil companies. It's not just one specific corporation. The point is that 
the people who are supposed to be policing these companies are often very good friends or have worked with or will be working with soon these companies <clears throat> later on or beforehand. So there's this very close revolving door of people who are supposed to be supervising this stuff to make sure that horrible things like this oil spill don't happen. But they were asleep at the switch, or they chose to look the other way. And there are stories about cocaine parties and, and all sorts of craziness. Just look into it. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff to be found there. Anyway, the story goes on to say the maximum increases to $4,300 a barrel for gross negligence, which BP was certainly responsible of, or guilty of in this case, or a conscious act or omission, eh, that's a little harder to prove, leaving BP liable for as much as $17.6 billion in fines. I don't believe that's going to happen, personally, but that's just my opinion. Uh, what it said on the next page is, BP set aside $3.5 billion to pay Clean Water Act fines based on its own lower estimate of barrels spilled and no finding of gross negligence. This reminds me of that scene in Fight Club where, and it's in the book as well, where uh, Jack, Ed Norton's character, is describing how his uh, audio company, the audio, the automobile company for which he works, they have this formula, yeah, and it's all about uh, there's this one element that's you know the cost of uh, lawsuits brought brought about by people whose car brakes fail, and then there is the uh, damages in court that they might have to pay, and then there are the lawyers' fees they might have to deal with, and then there's the cost of the recall. If they put together all of those costs of the thing going wrong and they are less than the cost of a recall, he says, we don't do one. And that's exactly what BP and other oil companies and every corporation in the world, really, thinks about when these sort of things come up. Is the damage from fines and lawsuits and the rest of it going to be less than the cost of doing things as cheaply and as quickly as possible in a way that maximizes profits? If it's less, then there's no reason to do something different. Because they're making the profits and they've factored in even $3.5 billion to say, okay, we'll pay the fines to the U.S. government, we'll pay lawsuits with the people in the region who are affected. And yeah, that you know it negatively affects our bottom line, but it doesn't negatively affect our bottom line as much as it would to make sure this stuff doesn't happen in the first place. So if we can cut corners and pump out $20 billion in profit and then pay $10 billion of that off to people who sue us or the U.S. government or whatever it is, that's a better net result than it would be if we only pumped out $8, million in, $8 billion in profit by doing things in a safe and environmentally responsible way. It's a simple numbers game. So... Uh, that's the news from BP. Uh, meanwhile, Business Week also had a very interesting article about uh, why we should raise taxes on the rich. I guess I shouldn't say it was an article. It was an opinion piece. And this opinion piece came to us from a guy named Nick Hanauer. And let me see if I can find the details about Nick Hanauer. Uh, he is a yeah a founder of Second Avenue Partners, a venture capital company in Seattle, specializing in early state startups and emerging technology. He has helped to launch more than 20 companies, uh, including Amazon.com. He's the author of two books. This guy's a capitalist. He believes in the free market. He believes in, uh, you know, capitalism and an open economic structure. But 
He says, the headline is, Raise Taxes on the Rich to Reward the True Job Creators. Uh, if you don't know, this recent uh, presidential primary season has been filled with this discussion of job creators. And Mitt Romney, who is a very, very wealthy man, and Rick Santorum, who is a very, very wealthy man, and Newt Gingrich, who is a very, very wealthy man, all of them are vying for the Republican uh, nomination. They've all started using this phrase, job creators. You describe the very, very wealthy people who have benefited from 30 years of government policy policy which has funneled tax breaks and, and, and economic policy that has rewarded the top 1% and especially the top, the top tenth of 1% in an extraordinary way while the rest of the middle class and the poor have been uh, generally watching their wages and their income and their wealth stagnate or decline over the last 30 years. But you're not supposed to get mad at people who are making a lot of money and I don't want to demonize people who make a lot of money but I am very unhappy about uh, tax policy and U.S. government policies, which favor the very, very wealthy, and they do. Anyway, this guy, this uh, Nick Hanauer guy, is a capitalist, and he is a guy who's done very, very well over the last 30 years, and he puts it like this, quote, I'm a very rich person. As an entrepreneur and a venture capitalist, I've started or helped get off the ground dozens of companies and industries including manufacturing, retail, medical services, the internet, and software. I founded the internet company Aquantive Incorporated, which was acquired by Microsoft Corporation in 2007 for $6.4 billion. I was also the first non-family investor in Amazon.com Incorporated. So this isn't some lunatic left-wing Occupy Wall Street nut job. This is a guy, you know, who's done very well in the American capitalist system. However, he says, I can say with confidence that rich people don't create jobs, nor do businesses, large or small. What does lead to more employment is the feedback loop between customers and businesses, and only consumers can set in motion a virtuous cycle that allows companies to survive and thrive and business owners to hire. An ordinary middle-class consumer is far more of a job creator than I ever have been or ever will be. So if we look at it, end quote, if we look at it on a large scale, the question is, here's the thing, companies are interested in a very large short-term profit gain. And in fact, if you look at the way companies operate on Wall Street today, it's no longer a matter of just making profits. It's no longer a matter of just making a little more profit this quarter than you did last quarter. Now there are all these analysts who say, how well is the company going to do? Here are the projections. The company, then, needs to surpass those expectations and those projections in order to make itself look like it's constantly growing. Because if you're not constantly growing, then you're constantly contracting and you're going to die. And then the forecasters say, oh, this company's on its way out, they need a new CEO, etc., etc. Uh, however, it's not enough to just surpass those expectations every year or every quarter. It's now a matter of how much further over the expectation are you going to go than you did last quarter. So it's not just a matter of making more and more profit. It's a matter of uh, exponentially and asymptotically trying to expand that growth of profit rate over the expectations of what other people think. So, so that's a very warped and obviously very unsustainable business model. Meanwhile, there is this massive influx of what's called micro-trading on Wall Street. There are these companies that have these computer algorithms, and these computers are designed to buy and sell stocks for a fraction of a second in order to make a fraction of a penny. And they do it over and over and over and over and over again. And they're only holding the stock for a very, very short period of time. But... They, if they buy it at, at a slightly lower rate than they sell it at, they're making a tiny little bit of profit. They do it over and over and over again. You end up with a cumulative effect that can make the people a lot of money. 
you may recall, if, uh, I think it was last year, I should find out when exactly it was, and hopefully by next week I'll have that information. There was this big drop in the stock market for like six hours, and nobody knew what caused it. Everybody was just sort of like, what's going Nothing had happened in the news. There were no big events that had caused it. There was no uh, release of company information. And everyone was just puzzled. What, what, what happened? Turns out what happened was one of these computer systems decided to sell a bunch of its stock in some company, GE or whatever it is. And these, com- these computers are making these decisions about which stocks to buy and sell for a fraction of a second based on a huge amount of information. The point is, once one of the computers says, oh, I'm going to sell a whole bunch of these stocks, the other computers then have that decision from that computer as one of the reasons why you should buy or not buy a stock. And as a result, they all started to dump their stock, and we just saw it snowball, and then the whole thing just came crashing down. That was a small thing. It corrected itself very quickly. But nothing really changed as a consequence. And now I and a lot of other people are looking at that whole process and thinking, it, what if that happens on a much larger scale? And and who's, I mean, there are obviously people watching these computers, but I personally am not comfortable with the level of supervision and regulation that's going on in Wall Street, because let's be honest, after the 2008 economic collapse, not much changed. This Dodd-Frank bill that passed in the United States did almost nothing. That's why Russ Feingold voted against it. And we have 90% of the problems that existed at the time of the 2008 collapse are still existing. And this new microtransaction process on Wall Street, uh, in my opinion, just makes things even more scary. Meanwhile, last thing from Business Week, and then I'm going to move off the economics. I'm almost done. Oh, hallelujah. Um, Business Week ran an article, uh, I guess an opinion piece, uh, called What Occupy Wall Street Gets Wrong About ALEC. And ALEC is the American Legislative Exchange Council, or uh, it's this group that basically a bunch of companies get together and they say, here's the kind of legislation we'd like to see the U.S. Congress pass. And as we've seen, that tends to be legislation that doesn't exactly emphasize the needs and the human rights of the average American so much as the needs and the rights of Monsanto and General Electric and General Motors and the rest of them. So Business Week put it this way. We could quibble about whether uh, the 1% uh, Occupy Wall Street had this thing on a website, uh, shut down the corporation's website, and the quote was, ALEC is one of the most successful mechanisms used by the 1% to control state and federal laws. It is much more than the lobby group. ALEC creates model legislation written to increase the profits of large corporations and hands it off in secret to lawmakers who then introduce it as their own. And this this process of ALEC saying, oh, this is organic from the grassroots, and then here, congressperson, why don't you introduce this legislation? It often comes right out of ALEC, which is a very inelegant way to do it, but you know what? Nobody knows about it, so they can pretend like it's all grassroots legislation. Anyway, Business Week said, we could quibble about whether the 1% are people or corporations, but otherwise, this is roughly the same take Bloomberg Business Week had on the council. So Business Week is making it very clear that Occupy Wall Street views this uh, legislative exchange group as basically this in basically the same way as... Uh, Business Week does, and so Occupy Wall Street and, and Business Week see things fairly similarly when it comes to how this ALEC group works, which is very odd to me. All right, uh, one last thing about economics. Uh, there's this guy named Banksy. Many of you probably know him. He is a street artist. He's There's a documentary film. I still haven't seen it, actually, called Exit Through the Gift Shop, which is about art and commerce and lots of other things. Banksy did a really interesting uh, intro for The Simpsons one time, which is a very amusing take on how so much of The Simpsons is made and so much of the merchandise is made uh, in third world sweatshops and the rest of it. Anyway, he put out a 
messaged recently. I don't even know what to call it. Uh, he put out a, he wrote a piece called Cut It Out. There's a book apparently called Cut It Out. And uh, he wrote this about advertising and marketing. Quote, people are taking the piss out of you every day. They butt into your life, take a cheap shot at you, and then disappear. They leer at you from tall buildings and make you feel small. They make flippant comments from buses that imply you're not sexy enough and that all the fun is happening somewhere else. They are on TV making your girlfriend feel inadequate. They have access to the most sophisticated technology the world has ever seen, and they bully you with it. They are the advertisers, and they are laughing at you. You, however, are forbidden to touch them. Trademarks, intellectual property rights, and copyright law mean advertisers can say what they like wherever they like with total impunity forget that and he uses a different word that starts with f any advert in a public space that gives you no choice whether you see it or not is yours it's yours to re- t- it's yours to take rearrange and reuse you can do whatever you like with it asking for permission is like asking to keep a rock someone just threw at your head you owe the companies nothing less than nothing you especially don't owe them any courtesy they owe you they have rearranged the world to put themselves in front of you they never asked for your permission don't even start asking for theirs now I am sort of an anarchist, but I also believe there have to be some rules in society or things get kind of nasty and ugly. And, uh, you know, I live in a place where police brutality isn't much of a concern. uh, So I I feel like I'm sort of privileged when I say that I'm glad the police are there. However, um, I believe that uh, he's onto something here and that this way of thinking about advertising is very important to think about. They have rearranged the world to put themselves in front of you. Amen, dude. I can't agree more. All right, uh, let's talk about hip-hop. <clears throat> Yasin Bey, uh, a.k.a. Most Deaf, he changed his name last year. Uh, he said that he was on the Colbert Report, and he said that, uh, oh, the name Most Deaf is something that he was given, and he's done a lot with it, but now he's ready to sort of move on to other things, and so he changed his name to Yasin Bey. And he has a really interesting song out right now called Negroes in Poorest, which is, he uses a different word that starts with N. And it's sort of a response to uh, the Jay-Z Kanye West uh, project album thing about respect the throne or dance with the throne. I don't really pay close attention to either Jay-Z or Kanye West, so I'm not sure what it's called. But I believe they had a song called Negroes in Paris. And so Yassine Bey's response, it sort of takes off on that idea. And the video is great, and I'll link to it on the blog. And uh, here's a little sample of that song. Now, I, I've always liked Most Def. His first album, Black on Both Sides, is a masterpiece of hip-hop creativity. It has a song called New World Water, which is all about, you know, worldwide water shortages, but it's a funky song. And he says, Heads is acting wild, sipping, drew and pu- sipping brew and puffing dank, competing with the next man for higher playing rank. Well, I ain't got time trying to be Big Hank. Forget a bank. I need a 20-year water tank. Anyway, um, yeah, so check him out. He's awesome. Also, I just found out recently that uh, Lupe Fiasco put out three mixtapes recently called uh, Fahrenheit 115, and it's a reference to the 1st and 15th, which I think is a street corner, maybe in Chicago. I don't really know the whole backstory behind it, but uh, if you, like me, were sort of unsatisfied with the Lasers album because it had so much singing from uh, loud people that you don't really know, uh, well, you maybe check out those mixtapes, and they're available online and the rest of it. Anyway, um, Davey D was in Madison, Wisconsin recently, and I was really sad that I missed him because Davey D, for those who don't know, is an awesome historian and journalist in the world of hip-hop, and uh, he was speaking in Madison on a Monday, and Mondays are when we do the Veteran Gamers podcast, so I was unable to go. But uh, he wrote a very interesting piece about Whitney Houston when she died, and everybody is uh, making jokes about Whitney Houston, and you know, I think he, he put it very well when he says this. 
David D. says, quote, She became the poster child for drug abuse and addiction in an industry that is chock full of people, dead and alive, who have all succumbed at one time or another to some sort of addiction. Over my 25-plus years in this music industry, I've seen a whole lot of ugly truths we like to keep hidden behind the glitz and the glam. Anyone in the music or entertainment industry can tell you stories of executives and shot callers who routinely do lines of coke, pop pills, do speed, take ecstasy, or drink themselves under the table while moguling. These abusive habits are far too often shared with the talent and artists. In a business where egos are massive and insecurities are shallow, taking a little something-something to get you amped up or get you open is all too commonplace. People don't want to talk about it, but it's true. And it's tempting in a case like Whitney Houston to say, oh, you know, make jokes and, you know, there were some funny things on uh, Mad TV and the rest of it about Whitney Houston. But, of course, the truth is, at the end of the day, she was addicted to a a narcotic and it probably caused her death. And that's a horrible thing. And those of us who have watched people struggle with addiction of various kinds know that it's really not a joke and it's a very uh, sad and, and horrible thing that we as a community really ought to wrestle with and we ought to ask if there is some sort of connection between the demands we make of our popular entertainers and the degree to which they are uh, escaping into worlds of addiction and the rest of it. All right, education, real quick. Um, There was a piece in the University University of Chicago magazine recently called Failed Tests, Linking Teacher Merit Pay to Standardized Test Scores Compromises Learning and Creates Incentives to Cheat. I'm a teacher. And I am very concerned about the current wave of emphasis on this business model of education. And I wrote about the business model of education uh, a few years ago. There's a thing on my Justified Textworks blog uh, or website about uh, the it's called Profit Without Honors. And it's about the business model of education. And I encourage you to read it because it's important and excellent. I should write a book. People need to know about the can eat more. Anyway, this thing from the University of Chicago Magazine uh, has an interview with a guy named Neil. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Derek Neil, uh, <coughs> who is a professor in economics in the Committee of Education. He insists that it is a, quote, logical impossibility that standardized tests, as they are most often administered, could assess both teachers and students without compromising teacher integrity, student learning, or both. Quote, the idea is that we want faculty held accountable for what students learn. So the tool that we use to measure what students learn is the tool that we should use to hold faculty accountable, he says. It's all rhetorically very pleasing, but it has nothing to do with the economics of how you design incentive systems. For standardized tests to show a correlation between student scores and teacher performance, they must be comparable from year to year and therefore predictable. Quote, any test that is very predictable will fail the requirement of being well designed for use in an incentive system, Neil says, because if it's predictable, there will necessarily be a hidden action, which is find a way to get a copy of the test and have students memorize the answers. Now, that's end quote. I don't know that it always, I mean, there are cases where schools have done that, where teachers have fed students the answers or there's been wide scale cheating and uh, the things are left behind one day and, and, you know, a teacher goes into a room and then they come out and they, you know, suddenly their students do a lot better. Personally, that's not my biggest concern. It happens and I think it's bound to happen. I think this guy's right that it is. The, the higher you raise the stakes, the less reliable the information from these tests become. There's a guy named Berliner in our, our Arizona who has done a lot of really interesting research about that thing and he sort of calls it a, a sociological Heisenberg principle. You cannot observe with great scrutiny and great uh, rewards or punishments attached to that observation and consider your observation to be valid because you're screwing up the validity of those results by scrutinizing it so carefully and attaching those rewards or punishments to that observation. However, the biggest concern that I have is that 
we're, we're, we're changing the nature of education away from its true roots or its true purpose, which should be opening up young minds and teaching people how to think and having critical discussions and, you know, asking questions in a Socratic way and instead causing this sort of drill and kill approach to education. Uh, which is supposed to lead to better results on these standardized tests. And in the meantime, if that means kids aren't actually learning and instead they're just memorizing stuff or they're just being drilled on one little skill set, I don't think that's a very healthy way for our democracy to grow and flourish. Okay, um, yeah, let me talk about responses to last week's show. I was blown away. I'm so happy to see people enjoying it, and I think I sound kind of weird, but other people like the, to listen to it. So uh, thanks to Chris MJW, who said I really enjoyed it. I won't pretend I understood much of the political and economic ramblings, but hey, uh, whatever, you know. And he says, uh, made me feel smarter and dumber at the same time. So cheers to him. I appreciate that. Master Zulu wrote uh, on, to me on Xbox Live. He said, uh, listen to the Deviant Syncast just for some reason I can listen to you talk for hours really enjoyed it please keep it going I'm going to keep it going man and I hope people will write in uh, send me questions or give me feedback or whatever you want to talk about anything that you didn't understand about today's show please write in I'd be happy to try to explain things if I understand it I will try to help you understand it it's what I do I am a teacher uh, but I also just you know other people's point of view or you know if you have a differing opinion about capitalism or drone attacks or US military presence or whatever it is uh, I, I like the idea of exchange and dialogue and discussion and dialectic that's really what I'm in favor of, not debate and I'm going to win and I'm right and the rest of it. No, let's have a conversation about this stuff, shall we? You can leave comments on my blog or you can send email to me. It's esp at fbesp.org. That's Eric S. Piotrowski at floatingbrainofericspiotrowski.org. Esp at fbesp.org. Write to me and I will respond. And I'm going to end with a quote of the week. And this week it comes from Ella Winter. She was an Australian-British journalist and activist born in 1898. She died in 1980. Uh, her autobiography is called And Not to Yield, which is a, the last line from Alfred Tennyson's 1833 poem Ulysses, which also includes this line, Come, my friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. I like that sentiment. Anyway, the quote from Ella Winter is this. She said, Even if I do not see the fruits, the struggle has been worthwhile. If my life has taught me anything, it is that one must fight. End quote. So, let us continue to fight, friends, you and me, nonviolently, but in defense of a better world and uh, the hope of making tomorrow a little bit better than today. Thank you for listening. I will stop talking now. Deviant Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.